0: A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name is Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10 15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the nine o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? Notice if you're in the auditorium just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium you can go out the left door and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen, downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the Auditorium Building at the crossover there, who'll be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class. Men and women both invited. We're for all ages. doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We've come this morning to Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11. There's a fascinating fact that we learn as we reach Romans chapter 6, verse 11, or as we become aware of, and that's this. When we read the book of Romans carefully, one verse at a time, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, looking our way through the book, and as we read, we're watching for God's instructions for us, looking for God to tell us what we're supposed to do, looking for commands from our Lord. We read all the way through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and down through verse 10 of chapter 6. And you know how many commands we've found to this point? <laughs> I'm sure you guessed it, not a single one. There may be some implied commands that we can draw out of it, but what we've been reading in the first part of Romans up through chapter 6, verse 10, is just sheer truth. God's been using Paul to give us truth, factual information, pure Bible doctrine. And then finally, we come to verse 11 of chapter 6, and God begins to tell us what we need to do about that truth. Now, there's a lesson for us here, and the lesson is this. Before we get too eager to launch into the application of Scripture, before we get too eager about thinking what it is we're supposed to be doing for the Lord, Before we spend too much time focusing on our conduct or on our behavior or on our experience, we must make sure we're clear about God's truth. This is important. And let's be honest. For some of us, this is a challenge. I don't know what your spiritual gift is. I know what mine is. It's exhortation. And if you happen to have the same gift that I do, we find ourselves strongly motivated by our spiritual gift, urge people to live by God's word, to obey the Lord, to put into practice what God commands us to do. And that's very, very important, of course, for all of us. We do need to think about that. If you have the gift of exhortation, it just it's an inner thrive. You feel like I've got to help people understand this. And, of course, you remember the book of James, the letter of James. James warned us of the danger of people who listened to God's word, but didn't keep it, didn't live it. Remember that verse? Prove yourselves doers of the word, he said, not merely hearers who delude themselves. If we listen to God's word and walk away and don't live it, we've got a big, big problem. We don't really know him, do we? We've got to be certain that we're doing the word of God. But guys, we need to make sure it really is the word of God, that we're not just doing somebody else's opinion of the word, might be. You understand, we've got to be really careful here as we try to discern these things. You've heard me say many, many times, we've got to find God's balance here. Well, here's another place. We need to find God's balance. For example, it's easy for a teacher or a preacher to start telling people things they feel like they ought to be doing. And it's easy for some of them to not have put many of us on a guilt trip. You know, that will tell us what we need to be doing and make us feel really, really guilty for not doing it. But we need to remember God says, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. We need to be very discerning here. This is what I'm talking about. We've got to keep in mind that there can be many different applications of God's commands. We need to learn to prayerfully consider how God may want us to apply his specific command to our own lives. And, and listen, guys, we need to be careful here. We've got to be really honest with God. We can, we can fall into a ditch on either side of the road here. But God may want you to apply that verse and that command a little differently from the way he wants me to apply that verse and command. Let me give you an example. You, you know, I'm sure God commands us, Hebrews, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. A very clear command. We must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. as the matter of some is, he says, but we've got to exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, that's pretty clear. And it would be certainly sinful for me to decide, you know what? I think I can live the Christian life on my own. I think it can just be me and the Lord. We'll be fine. I don't need those other Christians. I don't need all those meetings. I can just handle this with the Lord and His Word and my and me just just going through life. Well, that would be wrong. That would be sin. I need the body of Christ. We all do. We need to meet together to encourage one another. But listen, it would be wrong for me to say, "Look, guys, God says we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So you better show up at Sunday school." If you don't come to Sunday school, you're sinning against God because God says we're supposed to assemble ourselves together. Well, (laughs) attending Sunday school really is a wonderful application of that command. But there are certainly other ways to obey that command. And I've got to be really careful because God may have convicted me that I need to be in my Sunday school class for that fellowship and for that encouragement and for prayer support and studying God's word together. For me, it may be really, really critically important. That doesn't mean it's okay for me to make you feel guilty if you don't do the same thing I do. Now, if you're not attending any meetings with brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're not meeting to fellowship in God's Word with other believers in Christ, then I would say, yeah, you got a problem. But, you know, some people meet in small groups in their homes, and they've got great Bible studies going, and they're digging into God's Word, and they're holding each other accountable and praying for each other. So there are many other ways to obey that command. Anyway, God has waited this far in his wonderful letter to the Romans to give us any commands whatsoever. Finally, we get to chapter 6, verse 11, and we see applying commands. And it's partly because he wants to emphasize the importance of understanding right doctrine, understanding the truth before we launch into action. Right doctrine, correct doctrine, will always lead us to right living. If we're we're listening to God, when our lifestyle grows out of an understanding true biblical doctrine, then we are much more likely to be steadfast, to persevere, not quit, stay in the battle until God finally calls us home. So if and when Bible teachers or preachers come along and say, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to be doing this, this, and you need to do this, we may be tempted to say, wow, he's pretty authoritative. He's speaking with authority. He sounds convincing. He must be right. I better do it. But if our decision is just based on his instructions as a preacher or a teacher, and not based on solid biblical basis, we will soon find ourselves growing weary of it and quit. And maybe rightly so. God may want that teacher or that preacher to do a certain thing that he doesn't want you to do. He may have a different way for you to obey the same command. Do you understand my point? Because if we're just doing something because somebody else is doing it or telling me I ought to do it, and that's that's the basis of my reason for doing it, there'll come a point where I'll ask myself, why can I do this? And I won't have a good, solid, biblical answer. I won't remember what God said. So before we launch into the application, we've got to be thoroughly grounded in God's truth. And then we'll be much more likely to persevere to the end. Let's read these verses again one more time. We've read this passage several times in recent weeks and months, but it's good to hear God's word again and again and again and let it sink into our hearts and minds. We yeah, have to live by this word. We've got to make sure we understand this word. So back in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, The law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increase, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died, is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So let's consider this context one more time, make sure it's all in our minds here as we get to chapter 6, verse 11. Back in chapter 5, verse 20, he said the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And he knew that would be misinterpreted by some people. And they would think, well, if that's the case, why shouldn't I just continue in sin that grace might increase? Guys, that attitude is still very common in churches today. There are multitudes of people calling themselves Christians. And and they're they're trying to live by the false doctrine that was implied by that question in verse 1. They join the church. They say with their lips they're trusting Jesus. They got baptized. They say they want to live for Jesus. But their lives show no fruit of repentance. They're continuing in sin. They're excusing sin. They're saying in their case it's different. They're rationalizing. They're clinging to a false hope. that often goes something like this. Well, I know I'm saved. So I prayed the prayer, right? And, and, I, and I, prayed, I prayed the prayer. I went forward. I got baptized. And, and after all, once saved, always saved, right? And God's grace is greater than all my sin, right? So my sin is not that big a deal. They're making the same mistake that Paul's warning us about here. They take this precious truth from God's word, they twist it and abuse it, and use it to excuse sin, rationalize sin. If they were truly saved, they would be getting victory over sin, not excusing it, rationalizing it, explaining it away, and just living in it. But we've got a crafty enemy, Satan, and he's an expert at taking a beautiful, precious truth from God and perverting it. And if he can't push us into one ditch, he'll try really hard to push us into the other ditch. Watch out, guys. There are ditches on both sides of the road every time. So there will be some people who will look at the way some people maybe call themselves Baptists, but they're perverting God's grace, like I've described there. And they'll say, that doctrine of grace, that's a dangerous doctrine. That leads people to excuse sin. That's a bad doctrine. We reject that. So there are legalists out there who've been cheated out of a precious doctrine of God's grace because of the bad example of multitudes of people who have perverted the doctrine of grace. You see what I'm saying? Satan's either pushing people in one ditch or he's pushing people in the other ditch. He weaves a very tangled web. You've got to be aware. Let's be tuned in. Don't be ignorant of his devices. So Paul responds by saying, essentially, continue in sin the grace might increase. That's absolutely unthinkable. Such a thought is monstrous. It's absurd. And he proceeds to show us why it's so absurd. Now we come to verse 11. And I want us to notice three things about this verse. The first thing will be very obvious now that we've looked at these first 10 verses so carefully. The second and third things may be a little less obvious, but they'll get clear as we meditate on them. First, remember that Paul is showing us Since we are united to Christ, since we are in him and he is in us, the things which are true of him are also true of us. We were crucified with him. We died with him. We were raised with him. Secondly, this verse does not, listen now, does not specifically speak about our experience. The experience comes in the verses that follow, like beginning of verse 12. But verse 11 does contain a command that leads to experience. But in this verse that we're looking at right now, verse 11, he's not referring to any experience we may have had. He's not talking about our experience here. Thirdly, this verse does not deal directly with holy living. Now, when we apply the verse, it leads to holy living. Inevitably, it will. That's not what he's talking about in verse 11. So let's look at it in just a little more detail. He starts with the words, even so. King James has likewise also, He's once again emphasizing that what happened to Jesus happened to us. Even as he died, so we died. Even as he lives, so we live. The next word is consider. King James says reckon. The meaning of this word is to simply regard something as being true. Or maybe to conclude or to draw the deduction or to realize the truth, to meditate on the truth, to consider it. Now, I realize we live in a day when a lot of people are really into what we might call pop psychology. You know what I'm talking about? For example, there are executives and businessmen that will read books and go to meetings where they try to learn to psych themselves up with the right kind of self-talk. You know what I'm talking about? Like one popular line of thinking goes something like this. You're supposed to repeat these words, kind of like a mantra. Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. (laughs) And supposedly, if we just keep talking to ourselves like that, telling ourselves, I'm getting better and better. I really am. I'm getting better and better. (laughs) Then somehow we'll sort of feel better about ourselves and we'll be a better businessman or something. That's not biblical, of course. (laughs) But that kind of thinking has a way of creeping into churches. It can even cause some people to be dishonest in the name of faith. Have you run into that? I'm sure you have. There are some people who get sick, and they really are sick. But instead of telling the truth that they're sick, they're, they're taught to claim that they're well. If They call that faith. So the theory goes, you'll be well just by lying about the fact that you're sick. So when you're sick, you say, I'm not sick. I'm, I'm, I'm well. I'm saying it by faith. They, they call that faith. That's not biblical faith, but that's what they're calling it. Many years ago, the Christian science movement started this stuff. That was a cult. It was neither Christian nor science, but they called themselves Christian science. <laughs> but it made that kind of thinking a big part of their teaching. I read one time about a woman who was into Christian science, and and her car sadly got run, got hit by a train at a railroad crossing, and it severed her legs. And when help arrived to try to help her, she kept saying, Leave me alone. There's nothing wrong with me. Her legs were cut off. <laughs> but she was trying to think positively. <laughs> well, I didn't say think positively, say think biblically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Forget that positive and negative stuff. Think biblically, truth and falsehood. In our day, the name it and claim it preachers, they do this, the word of faith preachers, they do this, prosperity preachers, they often teach the same kind of thing. This is the way Satan commonly works. He takes God's precious truth, and he just twists it a little bit, and it becomes a horrible lie. A lot of people eat it up. As always, on the other side of the straight and narrow, there's, a, there's another ditch. <laughs> there's a ditch on both sides. So there will some people who just live in unbelief and faithlessness because they're afraid of looking like name it and claim it people. They said, boy, I don't want to go into that ditch. So they just don't walk in faith at all. I don't, I don't try to go too far with this, but I heard a dear, sweet Christian not too long ago who had been very ill, but who had now been healed. She was in full health now. Say something like this. All that time, I never asked God to heal me while I was sick. I just asked for God's will to be done. Now, I'm sure that's her way of trying to be humble Now, of course, it's very important for us to have that attitude that we want God's will to be done. That ought to be the primary prayer request for all of us all the time. We want God's will to be done, but that's not all we ask for. We try to discern what his will is, and we try to pray according to Scripture, the best we know how, for his will to be done. But we pray specifically, too. Remember what Paul wrote to the Philippians? Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be worried. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, listen to this now, let your requests be made known to God. That's a command. So we shouldn't say, Lord, I'm not going to have any requests. I just want your will to be done. No, we have requests. That's God engineered us to pray and make our requests known to him. And he commands us to do that. Now, sometimes because we're fallen and because we're weak and because we don't see like God sees, sometimes we don't pray correctly. We pray the wrong way. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. And that's fine because we want his will to be done. But we do the best we can to pray specifically. Jesus says an example in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember when he prayed there? He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, think about that. Didn't Jesus know he was going to drink that cup for us, the cup of God's wrath? Yes, he did. That's why he came. But he was teaching us how to pray. He did not look forward to that cup of wrath. And he knew there'd be lots of things in our lives we'd have to go through that we would not look forward to. And there's nothing wrong with praying, Lord, Please do this. Please don't do this. Even if it's not exactly right. Though so we always add, like Jesus does, but Lord, ultimately I want your will to be done. I hope I don't have to go through this, but if I do, I know you're going to get glory. I ask for your will to be done. Now, back to this pop psychology, psych myself up kind of thinking I was talking about. There are some people who might put this verse in that same kind of category. Okay, here we go. This is one of those things I've got to persuade myself up. I've got to psych myself up. I've got to trick my mind. Use psychology on myself. That's not what God says at all. When God says consider, which is what he says, he just means, hey, take my word for this. Accept it as truth. Because my word is truth. Understand its true. accept it, accept the conclusions of this truth, and then meditate on it. You don't have to trick yourself. You don't have to psych yourself up. Just believe me. Notice the next word, after the word considers yourselves, He's talking about us. He's talking about our essential being, who we are, the real me, the inner man. So he's been teaching me that I, the real me, was once in Adam. Now I'm no longer in Adam. I'm in Christ. I'm a new creature. Most fundamentally, I'm a spirit being with a mind and a will and emotions, and I'm living in a body of flesh. Me. He's talking about the real me here. I need to do this. (laughs) Now look at the last three words of the verse. In Christ Jesus. The King James has the word through Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. It's not a good translation. The Greek word really is in. And now we can see why it was so important for us. Back in chapter 5, verse 10, you remember we talked about this some time ago, how important it was to get that preposition right there. Let's look at that verse again. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved, and most translations say, by his life. The American Standard says that, by his life. But the Greek preposition Even though it could be, depending on the context, it could be translated by the word by or through. But in its basic, most fundamental meaning, it means in. And the word in fits the context here when we read this whole passage together. We are in Christ Jesus. We are saved in his life. We're united to him. We're one with him. He's the head. We're the body. He's the vine. We're the branches. Now, what are we to consider ourselves to be in Christ Jesus? What are we to realize is true about the real person we are at the core of our being because we are in Christ Jesus, because we're one with him? Well, first we're to realize we're dead to sin. Remember, he's not saying you need to quit sinning here. Of course we need to quit sinning. It's just not what he's saying here, not here. Remember, we are dead to sin just as Christ was dead to sin. Christ never had to quit sinning. Because he never started sinning. We looked at that in some detail before. He's not saying it's our duty to die to sin. Not here. He's not commanding us to die to sin. Neither is he telling us that sin is no longer a present day force in our lives. That's not what he's saying. That would be a lie. That's not what he's saying. never was a force in Jesus' life, of course. We are dead to sin. Remember, Remember the words, even so? Even as he is dead to sin, so are we dead to sin. He's not saying sin is dead and eradicated in me. That would be a lie, too. He's not saying we're dead to sin as long as we're getting the victory over sin. The analogy with Jesus makes that interpretation impossible. That's what he's saying. He's simply saying, consider yourself because you're united with Christ. Realize you are already dead. Because Christ is dead into sin. It's not my considering that makes it true. It's true because it was accomplished for me when Christ died in my place on the cross. This verse isn't telling me to accomplish anything. This verse is telling me to realize what has already been accomplished for me by Jesus Christ. It tells me that just as Jesus Christ once submitted himself to the realm of sin and darkness and death, he came and and submitted himself to it. Though I once lived in that realm of sin and darkness and death. But when Jesus died to that realm of existence, I died too because I am united to him. Sin no longer is master over me. God's telling us, this is the truth. Just believe it. Just accept it. Realize it. Admit it. Consider it. We live in a new realm. and The more we consider it, the more we understand that, and the more we realize that, the more we consider it, the more powerful that truth will be in our lives. It's a huge part of God's word to give us victory over sin. So, Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for getting to this command in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, after so much truth and doctrine in the first part of the letter. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that we need to simply consider ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to you in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to internalize this. Help us to obey this command. Help us to realize who we are in Christ Jesus. Help us to... Understand it so well that when Satan comes along and starts tempting us and trying to move us away from your truth, we'll be so settled and so firm that we will simply drive him off by the power of your word through the blood and name of Jesus and, and, and focus on your truth and stand on your truth and be so settled in your truth that Satan can't budge us. Lord, we want to live for you. We want to see more and more victory over sin, and we know this is your way do it. You've told us who we are in Christ and we need to believe you. So thank you for this truth. Thank you for this command. In Jesus' name, amen.